0: Welcome to Sympathy for the Devil, a podcast about addiction with James Marshall and Adam Manovic. What is addiction? In this podcast, we explore addiction in its many and varied forms, from sugar to love, from alcohol to gambling, from work to sex. You can get addicted to heroin and alcohol, but can you get addicted to your phone or computer game? In this podcast, We talk to people whose lives have been affected by addiction. This is a program that explores what is and what it means to be addicted. Warning the content of this program contains material that some people might find disturbing. Today, we're talking to Hannah, who's uh, from the west coast of. The states
1: USA, Los Angeles,
0: California, and uh, very much a Brett Easton Ellis type story, Absolutely, isn't it? Absolutely, man. I Explain to the listeners what that story is.
1: I don't know if you've read Brett Easton Ellis, listeners, but um, very popular for American Psycho and Less than Zero. Less than Zero was set in Los Angeles, affluent kids in California who um, did a lot of coke, not much parenting, had a lot of money, and um. Yeah, Hannah's story really reminds me of that. A great book, one of my favourite books of the time.
0: In a lot of ways, I guess from an Australian point of view, it goes against the grain of what we understand or what we believe to be the stereotype of addicts. Um, I I guess Americans are a bit different, but in Australian culture, um, if you kind of described who Hannah was or if you met Hannah, you would not believe that she was an addict.
1: Yeah, she comes across so well. I mean, she's so bright, she's very accomplished, um, and very articulate let 's hear her story
2: yeah, I grew up in l a drinking, jogging, sorry when I was fourteen. around that time, my parents yeah were going through a a divorce which I think it spurred on a lot in my family. I have an older sister as well, and she's two years over. We were going to the same high school, and her her addiction was spurred a bit faster than mine. And within three to four years, she was using heroin, addict, addicted to Oxy in and out of rehab. And at the same token, I was just um, – kind of following behind trailing her so mostly with coke I never really liked downers I always liked to be up um I grew up as a dancer so competed pretty much my whole life uh so the extra fuel with the coke just sent me wild and I I absolutely loved it and I would say my drinking continued drinking was prevalent all throughout um Blackouts right from the onset. I didn't, I didn't know that blackouts weren't normal until um, until I moved to Sydney. Actually, and I was speaking to a few so, friends. So you had
0: you had Australians tell you that blackouts weren't normal. <laughs> <laughs> you must be going pretty hard then.
2: Yeah. Yeah. One day I looked around at my friends and I just said, "Well, oh, I was blacked out last night, but like I'm always blacked out." And then one of them said to me you know not everyone is always blacked out like it's mostly just you and that was probably I was around 3 or 4 years ago when I when I realized that there was something a bit different about my drinking um than other people's and not but, but it didn't really stop me. It didn't it didn't stop me from um from keeping going. So it's uh, alcohol cocaine like it's always in a way it was always a part of my identity as well like I was always the party girl and I loved being the party girl and I didn't know what life could be like without that so I mean I'm sober now I've been cleaning sober for 14 months and I just I remember thinking there's there's no possible way that I can be sober like how can how could I how could I live without vodka like it just it didn't it didn't necessarily make sense to me
0: can i ask a question just uh kind mm-hmm. of um about your early days and you said uh you know growing up in la affluent suburb um you know uh more middle upper class i guess um how much do you think that environment first of all explain that environment a bit more to me so i can understand i've read all these books and stuff mm-hmm. about you know affluent coked out teenagers like Brett Esten and ellis type stuff um explain that to me um and what that whole scene was like and how it affected you
2: when you're 16 in LA you get a BMW and a nose job that's just that's just how it is growing up and imagine unlimited funds and parents who Not parents who don't care, but parents who are preoccupied with other things, like going through a divorce and trying to figure out custody of three children. Uh, My dad is, my dad's a lawyer. He's a criminal defense lawyer. So my whole life was always a bit sketchy in terms of random cars showing up all the time, like us having access to um, all these different houses from my dad's clients so these conversations at the dinner table were about drugs, were about rape, were about these all these fucked up different things in life that kind of became normal to us. like this was just conversation that we had at my in, within my family, and growing up with me and my sister when our drinking and drugging started, it I mean part of it was enabled. Um, my dad and I really, I do believe that my parents were doing the best that they could, but my dad used money in order to put us in his favor. And the result of that, when you have two kids who are really hurting and in a lot of distress and have exposure to drugs, like the result of that just is drug-fueled teenagers who are completely wreaking havoc. And, um, i don't I don't think it was everyone, but it was definitely it was definitely the the crowd that we were in mm. so it was you're saying like that stuff
0: like talk, talking about you know drug use you know rape things like that was normalized from an early age from you and could have kind of contributed to your um use or well, nonchalance around your kind was, of, was oh. a sensitivity
2: i mean i I had whenever drug dealers would get in trouble um or get arrested, it was like they would call me or my sister and say, can we have your dad's number? And then we would ask for kickbacks. It's like, well, yeah, if I get free eight balls for a few months, then I'll give you my dad's number. And so then our drug dealers were going to our father. Um, I'm not sure if they knew that there were referrals. I mean, we were his best source of advertising because it was like we had, you know, everyone who got DUIs, anyone who had drug busts, anyone who – um any type of thing that was any minor, I wouldn't say minor, um, that had to do with drugs, alcohol, and anyone that was busted within the community was always going to my dad. Like he was the point person. And that when I went to college and I started telling my friends stories just about coke, doing coke with my dad's friends, uh, doing drugs just in the family home. And just the look of horror on their faces when they had never been exposed to drugs before. And I remember me calling about, like, my best friend from childhood growing up, and she was also at college, and I just said, are you telling people stories, and are they looking absolutely horrified? And she was like, yeah, just stop telling people, like, how it was growing up for you, because it's actually not normal. And that was, I mean, I thought that that when you were 14 and if you did cocaine, like, that –
0: that was just how people
2: grew up. That's right a passage. Yeah, and wh- why, why wouldn't you be doing that? And it's now, I think now that I realize I had a lot of things robbed from me because of because of these experiences. Like my teenage years, a lot of my youth. Like it was growing up too fast in this type of environment can really cause some damage, and it's taken. You know, years of therapy that I'm still in to kind of reverse a lot of that and um or at least understand it and you know it wasn't just like when I when I got sober as well I didn't know what I was addicted to I didn't know if it was drugs or alcohol or if it was men and these two type of things it was so entwined for me and I think part of that was um because of trauma that I had been through when I was a teenager. Yeah. And
0: Can I quickly ask you about that? Like, um, we've had quite a few guests on the um, Sympathy for for the Devil podcast, and they've spoken about this, um, what you've just spoken about, having, uh, I guess, a a drug of choice, but then that leading to other addictions or um, having an addiction of choice leading to other addictions. And so you've just said there you've had men, you know, um, Coke and then alcohol. Can you tell me how they interacted and how they they fed off each other?
2: Yeah. When, when I was 15, we were on this family vacation in Mexico. And it was... Um,
0: Great place for cocaine. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> My allowance was like a couple hundred dollars a day for blow. Uh, and there were a lot of families from the community there and one of the dads basically um started saying really inappropriate things to me but i was i was blown in high and in his skimpy and i don't i don't justify this as a reason to do anything but looking back on it a 15 year old girl who is whose parents are going through a divorce who's clearly you know has bulimia uh drunk high all the time and he started saying things to me like oh you know I really um I really want to fuck you like I think you should come to my beach house with me in Laguna and I'm sitting there high and drunk thinking this is a bit odd that my friend's dad is saying this to me right now and then uh and then one night he was the chaperone in the club for all of the wasted children and he couldn't like threw me up against the wall and like groped me and started kissing me and touching me and at that point I was off my face and um I said something to another girl about it and said you know this has happened with this girl's dad and she just turned around and said to the girls whose father it was, oh, you know, Hannah's trying to hook up with your dad. And so basically that started an entire like childhood and high school experience of just like slut-shaming. Yeah, And so I was pretty much bullied out of that high school. And I think-
0: Where was the dad that obviously
2: Yeah, and looking back on it right now, it's like there is no – a 15-year-old or a 17-year-old, there's no excuse for an older man to be doing that, no matter how wasted a girl is or no matter what she's dressed like. And I didn't think – I didn't think I I knew that until – I mean, honestly, until recently, until all of this therapy. But that completely spurred a whole history of – getting wasted um it, hooking up with married men and not not really not really knowing why or understanding why.
0: Yeah, so that's a bit of a turning point for you in terms of I guess being hooked on men and in particular married men, you said.
2: Yeah, and I think like in between it wasn't always like that, but in between um you know, there was a series of horrible Verbal abu- verbally abusive relationships and just consistently going after, you know, the search for stability, yet yeah, the search for chaos. Like it could never, I think I always wanted a bit of stability, but everything around me had always been chaotic that I didn't necessarily, and still even now, now that I'm sober and I've have a period of sobriety under my belt, that stability is still a bit odd for me like it's it's uncomfortable for everything to be calm and to have serenity yeah
0: and i think um you know from my experience like i like you know sometimes i think is life meant to be like that like are we led into addiction you know is it is that our actual natural state as human beings like chaos like you're saying and it sometimes does feel a bit strange to have nine to five job and you know there's something in human nature to just want you want to push yourself
2: yeah when i first got sober i um Call my would call my sponsor and just say I really want to fuck things up, like I I want to act out in certain ways. And what when I got sober, I expected all of these other compulsions to be lifted. But basically, you know, hooking up with men and doing that and having a series of shitty relationships and this is all of these things get ingrained like the neural pathway becomes stronger and stronger. So I, when I got sober, I, did, I expected all these desires to then be lifted and then to completely go away. But I remember speaking to my therapist and saying, I'm not, I'm not drinking, but I'm in this environment and I still have the urges to act out like this. And it's because, you know, I had done it for so long. And I think when someone goes through a trauma like that, especially when their sexual identity is forming – That's how I started to see myself, and I didn't necessarily know any different, and it's, it's hard to reprogram that, and I don't think, and I've started to, and I think I, I am, but it's, it took me getting sober to be able to see things in a different way, because when you're in it, and when you're using, it's, a tornado and it never stops and I like it can't it just kept going around and around and around but you, I didn't know why
0: that moment of reflection when you're sober to look back at um like you know the addictions that you had um to me like it just seems a bit naive that you wouldn't um have had that real those realizations earlier but then I also understand because I myself didn't have my realizations until I went through some type of process and kind of had distance from it um can you tell me about your, um, I guess, when did you realise that you had to kind of, um, you know, have some type of rehabilitation and had and just tell me about that process.
1: Or well, was there a kind of moment of, was there a rock bottom or a moment of epiphany where, you, where something happened which was so kind of damaging and um, destructive that you thought you had to do something about it?
2: Well, there were a few. I... I was at a work conference a few years ago and it's we had these big sales kickoffs and basically was blacked out pretty much the whole time. Like didn't remember couldn't remember the whole conference. Um had yeah, just had sex with inappropriate people that I shouldn't have had, but waking up and not remembering that three days in a row and just having that continue to happen is absolutely horrifying and after that I I tried to stop drinking and I I tried to stop drinking on my own and that lasted two weeks and then and then I just started up again um I'm I live in Australia I work for a company where there are a lot of expats and It, it seemed the norm to me to be, not to necessarily be acting like that, but to be spending the weekends, hitting it hard, drinking all the time. I have a a good job, a really good job, and I was always very successful at it. So I didn't necessarily think that that was a problem, but I knew I started to register that things weren't really right, and actually I could not. I could not control my behaviors when I was drinking. Like I, I had no idea what would happen ever, and when consistently things really started to ha- like when horrible things started to happen on a regular basis, uh, that's when that's when I realized. But I didn't get sober until um, until two years after that, and what really brought me in was the. The crippling depression and anxiety, like I was getting panic attacks on a weekly basis, and I was dating this Irish guy, and he i remember he just looked at me one day and just said you're twenty seven like what the fuck are you doing like what how are you why are you acting like this and you know calling him blacked out, yelling at him on a Monday, things like this where it was I didn't even know I was going to be drinking that night and I wasn't an everyday drinker, and I didn't drink alone, but I started to get blacked out quicker and quicker, like on three glasses of wine toward the end of my drinking.
0: It's really interesting because usually you build a tolerance, yeah? So what what was happening with you that was getting worse in that sense?
2: I probably wasn't eating very much when I drank, and... I never liked to eat. Like, once I start, started drinking, I didn't like to eat, and I was mm. doing a lot of Coke, too. So that definitely helped.
0: Eating is cheating, mate. Yeah, that's like, exactly. That's why I say down, I'm done. Yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly. So, uh, <laughs> you know, you don't eat, and you're a couple glasses in, and it just, the I mean, the blackout started happening pretty much 100% of the time I was drinking uh, toward the end. And then. I had to start to plan, basically my work around drinking. So if I had a big week of work and a big week of uh, meetings, then I couldn't necessarily drink the weekend before. So I had to sit in my apartment alone because all my friends would be out drinking, and I didn't. I didn't know what to do if I wasn't. If I wasn't doing that, it was like, well, I'll go to yoga, but that's only one hour. So what do I do with the rest of my time? And it. I didn't realize, now I realize it, but I didn't realize how I was shifting things around to make room for alcohol in my life or not doing things because of alcohol and just thinking that that was the way other people were. But mm.
0: So yeah, um, I mean, that's really interesting, everything that you're saying. but um, So tell me, so that was your rock bottom in a way. So tell me your process about getting into rehab and um I guess some of the things you found out about yourself, some of the realizations you had about growing up and
2: Yeah, I I mean one night I was in the bath. I was always like really fucking depressed in the bathtub. And I just had a thought go through my head that just said, yeah, you know, it it would be better to commit suicide right now than actually live in this hellhole that is my mind and that that really scared me um six months before I was home back in LA for Thanksgiving and my sister saw me drink and it was just completely out of control my my sister's actually 10 years sober and she kind of pulled me aside and said you know enough is enough You've been questioning if you're an alcoholic for years now, and I'm I'm here to tell you that you are. So let's do something about it. She took me to um to a meeting in a in a twelve step program, and I I wasn't ready. I mean that day I was drinking by noon. And then you know fast forward six months that night when I was in the bath thinking about suicide, I. That, that really scared me that that seemed like an option. So I decided to go to um, yeah, 12, 12-step fellowship. And I didn't go to rehab. I kept my job. I worked throughout throughout getting sober, um, which was fucking tough. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't really know how to do anything sober. Like I remember this guy called me and he works at a partner company and we were meeting and I wasn't I wasn't really sure what the meeting was and um and he's my age and I had partied with him previously and I like I was like what what the fuck do we do here like do we get a juice like I I I just didn't know how to do these things, yeah. so...
0: Because alcohol kind of became you.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like, that was just, you get a drink, and then yeah. you get blacked out and, and do in, horrible things. And I'd
0: imagine in sales, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be the best environment for someone who's trying to get off alcohol. Because sales are known as party people, and it's very much a lunch, come out for a lunch, like, come out for a dinner, let's talk type business.
2: Yeah, but while everyone was just having a few drinks, I was blacked out so i don't yeah. I don't really you' taking that
0: yeah you're taking that to like the absolute maximum yeah. Yeah. I, I understand that, but all I'm saying is like you know being a like you know sales often you, you know you go you do a you do a lunch and you know you take out clients and you know there's drinks like often there's boozy lunches and things like that, so I'd imagine what you're going what you're saying now it would be quite hard, like
2: yeah, and it was hard it was hard controlling it because there was always this fear around. What happens if I go to one of these lunches? And, I mean, one client lunch. um, Went to the client lunch. It was a nice, yeah, really nice lunch, a lot of wine. And then I woke up at 2 a.m. on the street with no shoes, no phone, no keys. Had no idea how I got there. And, long story short, ended up sleeping on this old woman's couch. Like, it, it... and that was from a client lunch. And I just, I had no recollection of anything what, that happened. What happened
0: in the client lunch? Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> so you would have hoped
0: that someone's taking minutes yeah. in, that, in that.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure they went home to their families and I...
0: Just kept on going. Yeah,
2: I kept going. And that that's really what, like, I have a lot of friends. I mean, being from LA, like, everyone I grew up with is either sober, out there... Some are dead, Um, but there's there's a lot of twelve step in LA, and it's. I had always thought because I have a lot of friends that are sober now, and I'd always just looked at their lives, and my one of my best friends in particular, and I'd I'd always just looked at her life, and she's got maybe five years up, and I just thought my life would be so much better if I was sober, like it. I think I always, you know, morning yoga was, like, the barometer for, like, a healthy life. And I just thought, like, if I get sober, I can go to morning yoga, which will somehow mean I'm a normal person. And that, that was that was always what I wanted to do. Yeah. But,
0: that was your dream, morning but, yoga, yeah, yeah. 6 a.m., great, I'm here.
2: Yeah, instead of, like, you know, being 6 a.m. when I'm coked off my face, leaving my buddy's apartment in Bondi, And I see all these chicks going to yoga and I'm just like, I should be that yoga chick. But it's like, no, I'm fucking coked out of my head. And like thinking about all the weird shit I did the night before. Like that was my reality. But I, I just, I didn't want to be that person anymore. Like I really didn't. But when you're in it. Like, how do you explain to someone, like, oh, actually, you can't have any of your friends. You can't do anything you want to do on the weekend. You have to start a whole new life, and it's going to be completely different than anything you've ever known. How do you – like, you can't – you can't explain that to someone and just say and just go do it. Like, it has to be – i don't know like in 12 step you learn like there's your will and then there's god's will and but like it takes a lot of fucking willpower to get sober and to like walk into a room and say i have a problem and it might not look like it from the outside because i have a shiny job and i make a lot of money and i have friends and i you know live in this amazing country and look at all the things and look at all the accolades i have but on the inside i'm fucking dead
1: um, really- I think, I just wanted to ask, ask something there, Adam, about Hannah's experience with twelve-step fellowship. She said that it's very big in LA, and you do pick that up from the from the media and from television. All the shows I watch usually have a reference to a fellowship. Um, is it different here? Did you find it's not? Doesn't seem to be so ingrained in the culture here as it is in America. It really seems to be part of A real real option within the health system there is Mm -hmm. to go to abstinence. We're here, we've got harm minimization, which is not abstinence. That's Mm -hmm. a government policy. Do you find that a real cultural difference coming here and attitudinal difference to people who find themselves in a difficult situation but they don't want to go abstinence?
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, I haven't... I haven't lived in LA since I was 18 and the exposure that I had to 12 step was through, um, through my sister and the, the meetings that I went to. So, I mean, I got, I got sober over here. So it's, and I, when I go home, I do go to meetings, but it, this has really just been my only experience, but I know that there's not, and I don't, I don't feel a lot of shame when I talk about that I'm in recovery and I'm pretty open about it at work. My whole team knows, my boss knows, and I've done that for a safety measure as well because I don't I don't want to relapse and they they all know, so they're they're part of it with me and they're on this journey with me and they're extremely supportive and I know I'm very fortunate to be feeling like that. But I think maybe I'm a Not I'm allowed to, but I think I I don't feel that shame associated with being an alcoholic or being in recovery because of my exposure to it growing up. It's like everyone, mostly everyone, I, all of my good friends all went to rehab. And that's, you know, these are fucking expensive rehabs too. And that's just kind of, it's just kind of what you do. Like it's not, it's not necessarily as unusual, it's not unusual. No, no it's it's not and um it's like oh you know Britney's disappeared from high school like she must be in rehab or i was threatened you know, my mom threatened to send me to wilderness that's really big in the states too um oh, what's what's wilderness just like shipping you off to mm. a fucking forest to go get sober with like Criminals and rich kids, like mm. that's that's what wilderness can't like. And do they
1: come and get you? Like, yeah, like in the, in the of night. The night. Yeah. yeah, like I've had friends taken. Really? I've take done. Like, yeah, it's yeah. big. Really? Yeah.
0: yeah. That's, so, <laughs> that's so American. I've had
2: a friend taken in the night before, and <laughs> you know these big guys just come and like take her and ship her off, and uh, like it's happened to so a lot of my friends. It, but I, I thought that this was normal, and then. So the exposure that I've had, and I, I feel I feel really lucky too that I had th- this exposure because I was able to get sober through twelve step, and that's a huge blessing in my life. Mm-hmm. Can I
0: ask a quick question uh, with your um, rehabilitation process? Uh, I guess uh, you know I went through a lot of counselling like about eight years ago, and um, I found out a lot of things about my life that kind of I had perspective on. Like, what did you find out? Um, in that process, about yourself, that helped you, kind of, or well, finding out about
1: yourself, because she's still in yeah. therapy.
0: Yeah, if it helped you become sober.
1: I mean, I assume you're doing therapy when you're drinking.
2: Yeah, I was. Yeah, um, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think getting sober. And through twelve step, like I, I realized, I realized why I ran. So I left LA when I was eighteen, and just said, "I am going to get as far away from this place as possible." I went to college. I went to Spain for a year. I started my career in New York, and then I ended up in Sydney, and it was just getting further and further away. And I didn't know. I didn't know. I just. I just thought that I'd like to move around. And my sister, who also has exposure to 12 Steps, she had said, you know, it's kind of interesting that you keep on moving and what she was referring to is geographical. So basically thinking that you will move and not really realizing that you, your problems all follow you and you know, wherever you go, there you are. And um, I just thought I was this really big adventurous spirit. And I love that about myself. And now... And I don't necessarily think that's untrue, but I now understand that I didn't know how to handle my childhood and my teenage years, and I didn't know how to process anything. So basically, the safest place that I thought would be for me was to be away from my family and away from L.A. and thinking that that would somehow gain a bit more control over my life if I could just get away from these people. That Was that conscious? No. No it wasn't. Yeah, right. And I yeah, I realized too like the huge, huge resentment that I held against my father for a lot of the things that happened and I blamed him, but everything that a lot of it he wasn't aware of. And I held all of that against him and really there were periods where I wouldn't talk to him for months and with no explanation and just drop off and you know he was financing my life he paid for me to go to school it was money was never really that was his way of control yeah i mean i wouldn't say control but it was like it was it was his way and basically once i worked and started making money i cut everything i became you know and i know this sounds normal but it's a lot of my friends still get help from their parents and that's just the way that things are. So yeah. yeah, And like, but I, as soon as I could, I stopped accepting any type of money any type of payment because I didn't want to owe my family anything, including a relationship. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you think there's something in you that, um, just, you know, pushes the boundaries and wants to go further? And
2: yeah, I think with, with high achievers too, there's, it's probably not uncommon to have some trauma as well. And I've always been good at in anything that I've set my mind to, I will bulldoze through and smash it and crush that goal. Like that, that's, that's my type of personality. And I think that a lot of it comes back to a sense of worthiness and maybe if I am number one, then I will be worthy. Maybe it means I'm not so damaged. Maybe it means I'm not a fucked up person and someone will love me someday or I will get my family's love and it's these stories that and I've you know, I've unraveled a lot of that in therapy and also this you know overachieving and this drive I think a lot of it comes from my teenage years too like my parents had a child that was addicted to oxy and heroin and dying and then they had another child who yes you know a middle child who had you know, a lot of issues as well, but it wasn't as bad. So within, during these, those teenage years, like I always got really high grades. I won a national dance championship. Like I was always doing these things in order to say, you know, look at me, like I matter too. And, but who are you going to pay more attention to? The dying kid or the kid that seems fine? So I think this, this drive and the sense of ability, yeah, it's a, quest for belonging and I think now when it's something that I still try to work on but I am worthy and I belong unconditionally like no matter what and that's a relationship that I have with myself and with my higher my higher power and no one can take that from me and that's not contingent upon any type of performance but I didn't know that when I was in active addiction and alcoholism and my relationship with work was always like very complicated
0: Mm. yeah I can imagine
1: Um, just looking back Hannah um, would you say the major reason that you were um, susceptible to drugs and alcohol um, was your childhood upbringing or was it something within you like it's the nature versus nurture argument what do you think about why you were who you were?
2: I mean, the nature versus nurture argument, like, it's... I think that there's there's a component of both. Like, I look at my behaviors when I was a child. Like, I was an obsessive reader. Like, I remember my mom told me, like, she wouldn't buy me any more books. And I just started screaming at her, being like, what kind of fucking mother are you that you're not buying your child books? Like, all I wanted is more books. And I would stay up throughout the night reading and then my mom would come in at to wake me up and i would say i can't go to school today because i've just read and it like i always had this really obsessive nature you had a
0: reading hangover well
2: yeah exactly <laughs> like i you know i love harry Potter. Oh, I, just read,
0: I read so much last night <laughs> yeah. man i can't i can't deal with this
2: I still get this um <laughs> and ju- just this like there was always there was always a sense of yeah like a bit of obsession always lingering in some places but that can that can cause people to do great things and just this really determined mindset and it's kind of like drinking like I was really determined to make it work but I think the exposure that I had to drugs through my upbringing and through also the funds like we I mean like it and I don't know if I didn't have exposure to the funds to buy cocaine, then I would have, you know, started on meth or ice or something more affordable. I don't know that. I mean, I'm I'm happy that that didn't happen. Very happy. But it. I think that there's a component of both. And all three... Me and my siblings, we're all... We're all like this. We're all obsessive. I think we're all addicts in a certain way. Like, even my sister... She, she's an attorney now. She, her life has, you know, she's done a complete 360 and she's extremely successful in her career and she's used this and harnessed it to, for work. And in a sense, like now I'm able to do the same. My brother, he's a trainer and I mean, he does this with the gym and it's, you can harness it in a certain way, but it's still... Like for me, what comes into is that thought process of, well, what is this trying to fill? Like this obsessive behavior, like this compulsion to get more, do more, be more. Why? Like So I try to be careful around that because that, that's what I think is, can turn something into being really unhealthy. Yeah.
0: Um, I'd like to know uh, where you're at now and um, how your recovery is going. Um, some reflection from you on uh, I guess where you're at at this point in your life,
1: yeah, and basically, I like do you miss any part of your old life as well?
2: no no, no, uh, I've been sober for fourteen months, and today today, my life is really it's really different recovery recovery looks a lot different than I thought it would um. I I got really sick in recovery, really sick, and was diagnosed, now recently, just got another diagnosis of an autoimmune disease, which I expected to get sober, and I, I think I expected to be an Olympic athlete. It was like, you know, exercise had always been such a massive part of my life. If it wasn't dance and yoga, and then I started doing aerial hoop, and i had all of these things i just thought that my body was going to be indestructible and then i got sober and i got really sick and that has been just as challenging as getting sober and the acceptance around that and um you know it looks different but i started doing tm i meditate twice a day for 20 minutes every day i have I now know why I do things. I think I'm a kinder person. I'm a much softer person. I am better at my job. I care about people more. Like I have stronger relationships, but I also cut the relationships out of my life that I I think are toxic and don't benefit me. And I I now have control over that. Um I don't I don't miss it at all. Like it I don't want to drink and I don't want to drug anymore because it takes it took everything from me like it took my self-respect it took my dignity it took my self-worth it started to take my friendships my peace of mind and i couldn't i hit a point where i realized i couldn't go and i couldn't do the things that i wanted to do in my life because of drugs and alcohol and so now sometimes i see people with sometimes a glass of wine and it's like but i never had a glass of wine like i didn't just enjoy a glass of wine at home i never why why the fuck would someone do that like no if you're gonna drink you're gonna be sculling a bottle of vodka and getting a bunch of blow so
0: why why ride a push bike when you can drive a ferrari
2: exactly like i just i don't see the point so it, it enjoying a glass of wine over dinner like it it doesn't really appeal to me. So the way I want to drink and the way I want to use is not compatible with the person I want to be and the person that I am today.
0: Uh, You know, no regrets about how your life's turned out? Do you feel like you're you're a much stronger person than you could have been um, if things didn't go this way? Like, do Do you kind of have a reflection in that way?
2: Sometimes do I wish that I had grown up maybe in a small town with a family that was just a nice family and
0: Iowa Montana yeah like
2: (laughs) but you know what I meet people like that and no no offense to them the people that have had no trauma in their life and have had nothing really happen to them and I just I don't relate and I think that the things that I've been through if I look at it in a lens of you know I can share my story and I can help someone and I can help young girls that have maybe gone through something similar and I can show them that there is a way out and they don't have to live like this, then maybe that's what I was meant to do. The majority of women that I have talked to in a 12-step fellowship, and, and all 12-step fellowships, they, the majority of them are have been sexually abused somehow or domestically abused, and these things can really shape someone's life and they can change their trajectory. So... It's not only that there's help and there is a way out, but also to the other people that are witnessing this, that you can stop and you can make a difference. And don't let these children, you know, whether they're three or 15, it doesn't matter. Like it, teenagers are still children as well. So the message would be, don't just sit there and let these things happen. Like it, you can help and no one should just stand by idly. Well,
1: thank you very much.
0: Yeah, thank you for your time. Um, Hannah, you've been really generous in your spirit and um, uh, James and I would like to really thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Um, Thank you for telling your story.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: To join the discussion, visit our Facebook page, Sympathy for the Devil Podcast and let us know what you think.